welcome back to What Happened to You with a view this time. We're recording in person for the first time since episode two. I'm here with uh, my friend Josh, who runs Comedy Pass Studio in Santa Monica. Highly recommend checking it out. A fellow comedian who talks about trauma. I am excited to have you on here, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Uh, just to clarify, because Mike will be mad if I don't, he runs a... Okay. I'm just the talent. Mike, Mike Ed runs a Comedy Pass, so thank you for letting us use this space. That's where we are right now. We're on Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica doing a podcast. I remember the first mic that I did here, I did the molestation material. Everyone did that night. Yeah, that's like, right. It was a theme. I remember talking about it, and then... You, I, I remember being like, oh, like, did anyone else, like, have this experience? And you, like, put your hand up in the back. And I was like, yeah, dude, like, come on. It's like a very funny moment between strangers when you find out that somebody else has been through something similar. So have you ever had anyone come up to you after you've done that and been like, I've never told anyone this, but like, yeah, yeah, me like, too. A lot. Yeah. It's very interesting. I'm just like, wow, like. Lots of times they're drunk and will come up to you after after a show or something, and it's just like, man, like, it's a good feeling because it's like, I'm glad you're able to, like, get that off your chest and admit that to someone, but it's also like, you have to leave them after that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, I'm a comedian, not a therapist, <laughs> and I have to, like, let you go after that, you know, so, like, ah, it's, it's kind of a rough thing, too, because I feel, like, I think about them all night, and I'm just like, I hope they, like you know can go somewhere like talk to someone yeah but I, I know exactly what you mean but i think in that moment you you have already provided so much for you know somebody who wasn't expecting to deal with that uh, yeah. at that night if ever you know yeah. and like what you provided for them by speaking about your experience is invaluable and i felt the same way like almost like 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 i'm abandoning them no. or something if we don't like keep chatting about it mm -hmm. but really it's like you've done more than enough already but it is a crazy feeling like i remember the show that we did in uh lakewood i got on stage and was doing some molestation material and one of the comics he wasn't even on the show but like a bunch of people kept getting on because it was like a hot show and like yeah. there were just a bunch of comics in the audience so people kept getting on after like the people that were booked got on and uh this guy got on stage he was I think he was must have been 50, 55. And uh, he he was like, hey, shout out to the kid who was talking about getting molested. Like, You're talking about the old cat, right? Yeah, the old yeah, cat. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. So this dude gets on stage and starts talking about getting molested. And he was funny about it. Yeah. And I was chatting with him after the show. And it turns out he had never told those people about really that. like this whole group of people in lakewood were like that was like his those crew. were his friends those yeah, were his yeah. friends that he'd known for wow. like a long time and after seeing that set he was like fuck it dude i'm he going up courageous there. that's awesome it was and for him to also be like that old too it's like it was cool to see like this is helpful no matter what age you're at and that there are people of all ages who haven't spoken up yeah. and like when they see somebody joking about it it like makes it easier it was also crazy because he was like the only person that i've ever told was my cellmate in jail because he was like well nobody will find out it was one of those moments that felt like very purposeful it, it's an amazing feeling to make people laugh doing yeah. comedy but it's a whole other thing to be like 
helping helping <laughs> in a way more than that so yeah i i know what you mean it's a it's a pretty cool feeling and uh i want to hear about like how you got into comedy and and how what your trajectory of trauma comedy has been like but before we get into that okay what happened to you um <laughs> so uh i didn't understand not being molested so like my joke about my uncle molesting me is really just a softball way to introduce the audience to like my trauma because it's way worse than that like my uncle would i didn't even know my uncle like my uncle didn't molest me i, I didn't like he wasn't in the picture so when i was like born or whatever like my first memories are of being molested so my mom was a uh, prostitute junkie she did crack meth heroin like all the like hardcore needle drugs and uh she would like pimp me out she was selling me like time with me and like it wasn't like I guess that explicit, but she would like be with these dudes who were obviously way too into babies to also be heroin addicts uh-huh. and like leave me with them while they would bring drugs specifically, not fuck her. And like she would go do the drugs and then whatever happened, happened to me. You know what I mean? So, so she knew, she knew like she, on, yeah. she would make sure that I was like, in the house when this, these people would come over, you know? So it wasn't like, that was wasn't like, like she of, was unaware. She, she knew my appeal to the specific people. Wow. Um, and she was just like in the drug community. So it wasn't like everyone, but it did, it like happened mm-hmm. uh, pretty regularly because it was a, like an understanding, you know, that she had with these people. So, um, I don't know. Like, I know all that now, remembering and being, like, living the life that I've lived. So I understand what happened, and I can put, like, words to that. But at the time, that was just reality. Like, that's just, like, all I'd ever known. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the only times it got any peace or any kind of, like, um, good feeling at all was when she would go on benders and leave me home alone for days. But, like... That still sucked. Like, I could only eat what I could reach. Like, she didn't, like, leave food for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. She, but it was, like, I got to Damn. feed myself. I got to make decisions and, like, be in control of my life in those periods of time. So, like, those were the greatest periods of my life at that time. And so I got to watch TV. And, like, that's pretty much all I did anyway. Like, they didn't, even when I got a little older, I never went to school. Like, I just was at the house. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but my mom actually had, like, four other kids that had all been taken away from her. Like, every single one of them. And wow. then she had another one. Uh, and I forgot to mention, too, my mom was schizophrenic, paranoia, or paranoid, schizophrenic, like, audiovisual, and bipolar. And the only drugs that she didn't want to take were the ones that the judges and the doctors wanted her to take. <laughs> um, yeah. And she was doubling down on the, the ones she wasn't supposed to take, which probably weren't helping her mental state. So, yeah, that's just, like, how I started growing up. And so when I went from that into foster care, which isn't, like, a ton better, it's kind of, it's a real Russian roulette. Um, And that was, so basically your first memories were of getting molested by your mom's clients. randos, yeah. yeah. And then what was the time frame like between that and when you got into foster care? 
uh, that was it. Like, that's what happened. I would get molested, beat um, by my mom and whoever guy she was with. Like, all they were all, like, hitters of women and children. Um, and I would get beaten. And, and uh, eventually, after, like, tons and tons of trips to the hospital, this is the 90s in the south in Tennessee. So it took a minute. But, like, finally, they couldn't even ignore it anymore. And they, like, took me from my mom again. I was like, what are you waiting for? Like, you already took four. Like, why is <laughs> why is you still need so much proof? But it ended up uh, one dude named Harold, he, like, uh, hit me in the head with a two-by-four, like a whole, like, building material piece of wood for a house. Uh, on the front lawn of the projects where I like grew up in Tennessee, and eventually the cops got called to, to that because like you know they just slugged a, a six year old with a with a, a a board, and like I was I don't even remember any of it. Uh, I was I'm sure unconscious. So yeah, that's how I finally got taken away. And then foster care was weird. Uh, one dude definitely molested me. And he, I don't know how they didn't see him come in. He, was, he worked for Fox. He was, like, a producer. When Fox was, like, a small thing. Like, all I had was The Simpsons and, like, wrestling. Like, that. then this dude worked. He was a producer for Fox. And I'm sure he's, like, literally probably a multimillionaire now out here. And I don't even remember his name. I could probably find out, though. Um, but, yeah, that he, dude's definitely still molesting kids. Was he, like, part of the orphanage? Like, Helping? No, it wasn't. Helping would not be the right word. But. No, it wasn't even an orphanage. So the first place I went after being put into the system was Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. And that sounds great, but it is a horrific place. At least it was. Yeah. Um, so when I went in, the first thing I experienced was someone my age, like six years old, was being held down in a rubber room and being shot full of Thorazine by four grown adults. And that was like they just left him there after that. Like, and they were in a straitjacket. And I didn't know what that was at the time. That was like terrifying for me. It was like I was being taken aboard the mothership. So, like, I didn't know what was happening to me. Yeah. Um, they literally would have us do exercise because we couldn't go outside. It was a total lockdown. They would have all these children in this lobby, this like doctor's office lobby ish type thing. And we would watch Richard Simmons videos and do them. <laughs> and if you did the exercises to the to the satisfaction of the nurse ratchets Ooh. around, you would get a baseball card. And the baseball card was how you would get like snacks in the end of the night shit. It was a fucking prison. Holy run on shit. baseball cards on Richard Simmons. That sounds it's, like like a Batman, like Dark Knight Asylum dude, type shit. Yes. Is that it? was Vanderbilt Children's Hospital at that time, as it was. And they didn't even put me there because I had done anything. That's what I was going to ask. They put me there because they didn't know what else to do with me until I got a foster home lineup. Like, it was an emergency situation. So they were like, here, go with these nice people. So, yes. That that was my first experience, and then I went to the first, like, foster home I went to, like, got molested again. So, like, again, nothing outside the normal, just a nicer setting. He had a nice house. Um, he had another little boy there. Um, and the real thing that tipped me off about him, I was wary from the beginning because this motherfucker wanted me to get an earring. I was six, bro. What? And he was trying to go get my ears pierced. Wow. And the kid that was already there had his ear pierced, and so did this guy. And he was like, I mean, and I literally remember telling him, I was sitting up on this hot bunk and I was like, no, like, I'm not doing that. And he was like, oh, no, it'll be fine. Like, it won't even hurt. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I don't care about the pain. 
Yeah, that's weird. Like, I don't, like even as a kid, <laughs> this time, I, I was like, line. I was like, I'm six. I don't need an earring. I'm not yeah. thinking about accessories yet. <laughs> I'm thinking about what you're gonna get me for dinner. Bless me all you want, but I will not wear jewelry. <laughs> Damn right, I'm not. <laughs> will not let you dress me up like your whore. <laughs> I have self respect. Damn it. So this is at six. Yes. Or, and this is the first family. The that first you were... foster, not even family, foster guy. Yeah. And how long did that go? Or actually, a couple months. I batted him out. What do you so, mean? So, like, I literally just was atrocious. Like, I would do anything and everything. Anything that seemed fun to me, I knew was going to get me in trouble, and I would do it. And eventually, he just got tired of me. So, and you were, like, just trying away. to get out of the situation. Yeah. You know what his threat was, too? This was really creepy. Think about it. He used to tell me that I'm the end of the line. I'm your last stop. I'm all you got. And it was just like, nah, I'll see what's behind door number three. Like, yeah. there's somebody else. I'll go back to the hospital. Like, <laughs> you don't understand what I, I had a bunch through. of baseball cards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll trade this Babe Ruth to get the fuck out of here. I was not giving a fuck, man. I just knew that if I, I knew that if I pissed him off enough, he would either like knock me unconscious or like somehow eventually I would get out of there because that was my only experience previous yeah was uh, and I don't even think I was that bad I think these people were just assholes <laughs> but I was doing the things that they didn't like so uh-huh. I was bad quote unquote so what happened what was the thing that caused you to be I, able to leave he was dating some woman who had her own little children and uh, I think we got into a fight and I like whooped their ass and yeah. he was just like she like demanded I leave and he was just like I could have three kids or I can have two and one of them's a piece of shit yeah. so he went with the three children I'm sure they're happy <laughs> and then what happened gotta play those numbers yeah and and also especially in pedophile land big time they have like definitive age ranges too where I because I, sometimes I wonder like if I hadn't spoken up about getting molested when I was 10, if there would have been a certain age where I, the guy would have stopped molesting me. So oh, yeah. You would have gotten unattractive. To them. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey I, wish it, mm, I wish it happened sooner. I'm seeing some stubble. <laughs> yes. I don't know if I can handle all that. <laughs> I need you to shave that crotch. <laughs> How are yeah. you going to explain this to your, to your mom who buys all your hygiene supplies? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd known I could have taped some pubes on myself when I was nine. <laughs> I just get like a, a, what do they call that, like a crotch wig? <laughs> yeah, like one of those fake mustaches. <laughs> Put it on my it's crotch like, region. Like molester deterrent. It's like... It's like mosquito repellent, hair. Can we isolate the? Can we isolate the gene for hair and just start pumping yeah. that into people? Can we start looking like monkeys again, please? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just full fur coats from birth. <laughs> no, um, why I'll get molested anymore? Well, I don't know. M- Monkeys—they have been known to be sexually aggressive with each other. Do you think monkeys molest monkeys? Oh, well, absolutely. Baboons rape each other all the time. But baby baboons? Shit, I don't know. I think we need to get National Geographic on that. I mean, it's interesting because if not, then that's human learned behavior. I wouldn't be super surprised. Oh, but that's what I was going to um, before we cut out before. I think that it's not necessarily about being attracted to a child. I think that what it is is control and that children are very susceptible to that control specifically when you're coming at them from 
an angle of like a friend in a strange world like that. Like in my situation, anyone that treated me nice got my attention. Yeah. Because I didn't get anything nice very often. So like the people that my mom would bring over were like gentle. Like it wasn't like they were just like, you know, Hobby Buchanan. And they're just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? they weren't like tearing me up. But I mean, they were, but they were like... <laughs> polite about it i guess i don't know like it was better than it could have been yeah um i I wasn't aware of that but it was just like it wasn't being struck in the face you know it wasn't physical pain right off so it was like and they would like last time they would have like candy and stuff like my mom never bought me candy Mm -hmm. she bought drugs uh and like the bare essentials like i grew up on cold hot dogs and cheerios like seriously that's what i ate most of the time well it's interesting too like thinking about how it's definitely an element of control i imagine part of it is trying to normalize the their own experiences like if they were if they grew up in environments that were like super out of control and like they Mm -hmm. had similar experiences it's almost them trying to like make it like maybe it's like getting even or like trying to make it seem more normal like now this happens to everybody it's not just me it feels like it is more complex than just being attracted yeah. to children, which I'm sure is part of it. Who knows? It's obviously different for every pedophile. But well, I mean, like like you said at the mic the other night, like literally almost every decision you make can be boiled down to fear. Yeah. And like what you're afraid of, uh, whatever that may be. So it's like, yeah, I'm sure there's attraction there, but why are you attracted to them? Like, I don't think that's the real issue. I don't think that that's what we need to treat or, like, focus on because that's the problem. Like, that's what's happening. That's what's stemming from it. Yeah. That's the action of what's going on in the decision-making. But it's like, why are you making that decision? Like, what about that attracts you? And if you really examine it, I think any pedophile really sits down and examines it, it's, it's because they can't deny you they can't turn you down they can't treat you less than you know they're children you're so far more in control mentally emotionally physically like on every level you're in control of a child Mm -hmm. and they can't even do anything about it because they don't know any better yeah and so it's like that's for me why i think it's it's a control thing it's a it's the ultimate control over someone else and like you said it's a response to something that's happened to you but i don't think that's necessarily revenge i think it's a it's an attempt to in a, in a broken way it's an attempt of a broken mind to be safe and to <laughs> and to feel wow. to feel that safety and it's like a drug to them to be that in control and of anything is addictive because that's like the only thing they really want deepest down inside them is to be in control of their world and their environment, you know, and that's just the way it comes out. And I think that represents not, I don't think that's specific to pedophiles. I think you can find that in a lot of illegal activities. Like that's just like anything that puts you in that feeling of control that you find first. It's what you find first, really. I think that first time, is more what you're talking like a like a learned thing where you're doing maybe what happened to you or it's mm-hmm. just a like a situation you find yourself in with like you know maybe nothing happens to you and you have a great family but like you go to cub scout camp with like the wrong motherfucker you know and like sure. it maybe only happens just the one time like you said it's definitely situational but yeah. i think it's people in my situation anyway who have that story especially in like i've 
gotten and this is off topic a little bit but i got really into serial killers for a long time because i was afraid that i was going to end up being like that because i looked at a list of like psycho traits traits and i like hit every fucking one of them yeah and so i was just like oh shit um and the difference is really just choice and and like it making choices and the difference too is that the awareness Mm -hmm. of like your own upbringing and your own tendencies and the difference between you and somebody who goes and does that is that i i imagine most serial killers aren't googling the symptoms of serial killers beforehand yeah no what you were talking about with the control aspect like it makes a lot of sense like if you if you were molested you were in an environment that you had no control over and maybe that is more of the root of pedophilia i don't know but it's it's definitely dependent on the person but i it's inevitably part of it and it's it's interesting to think about but i think the good thing is just being aware and like knowing that like because I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before about how like there needs to be a way for pedophiles people who like start to realize that they're attracted to people mm. that are underage there needs to be a way for people like that to get help yeah and I think that that's the real issue and I think that I think a lot of people so being in those places with those those people in the the, the facilities where I was the children's hospital and then after that, when my parents sent me to, like, quote-unquote boarding school, those, when I talk about that, that's, those are really, like, residential treatment facilities. Like, they were boarding schools because I lived there and went to school there, and, like, there was other children there. But they were four children who, like, had unknown issues, you know? Like, basically, my parents didn't know what was wrong with me. They just knew I was broken. Yeah. Uh, and so I went to this place in Montana where, like, that's what they did. They were, like, a, they were a research granted facility so they would they would provide high-end therapy but they were also like did some shit that was fucked up uh so there's a thing called holding therapy that the reason i remembered anything that happened to me at all was back in the day there was a theory that if you could induce trauma that it would force the memories up right like that works but it's also what the CIA does to people. You know what I mean? Like, it's fucking torture, like, legally, by definition. It's actually illegal to do holding therapy. It's child abuse now. Yeah. But my parents signed off on it, and uh, that's what they did to me. Two grown adults would hold me in a restraining way, but they would stroke my face and say kind things to me no and way. be weird. Yeah, it was the fucking weirdest shit that's ever happened so to they me were like in my life. Yes, they were simulating an out-of-control feeling with uncomfortable touch and feeling. <laughs> yeah, they basically so fucking molested me again without touching my dick. Um, wow. But they, like, mentally and emotionally molested me. Yeah. Uh, and this happened when I was, like, 13, 12, 13. So and you- they would physically hold me down for hours, bro. For hours. Like, this wasn't, like, something they did... It was torture. So, like, what ended up happening, they fucked my life up because of that. Because my my parents would come... And just to clarify here, so... Sorry, I'm, like, backtracking. The, the totally fine. So, you... The guy who originally took you in, the guy who wanted to give you earrings, that happened, and then 
I was in a bunch of other foster homes, okay. and then I got adopted by parents when I was seven. I've been with them ever since. Got so it. I should okay. like clarify no, that. Totally, totally follow. And those are the people that have that sent me to the to the the treatment facilities got uh, it. when I was twelve. And okay. so then that happened, and they did, and like it wasn't like I don't like blame them. I'm not upset with them about it. They didn't know what else to do, and they lived in their own little rich person bubble. They had never had any contact with that part of the world the dark side of humanity they both grew up wealthy reasonably my dad was a high school football captain my mom was a cheerleader they were literally married like right out of high school like that that was them that was what the you know they were the american dream they had four kids my dad had built two houses he had a good job my mom didn't work and they wanted to adopt another kid like my mom couldn't have more kids so they wanted another one so you were adopted by this family at seven. Yeah. And they already had four other kids. They had four other kids of their own. And then after me, they adopted. They ended up doing adoption as, like, their career. Like, my dad retired from his job, and they started working with these people in an international adoption foundation that specifically did adoptions from China and still do. Um, they're still associated with it. They still do fundraising. Uh, my mom's in charge of, like, all of the... Um, donations that they receive like distributing them to uh, like TCU and Baylor and other colleges who are doing research on like child abuse and child response to trauma a lot of the best work that's happening today in the world of child trauma response and how to deal with that and like react to that as parents especially newly adopted parents are, are all that's coming from the work that my mom and dad have done so they're like I can't right. fault them they're not bad people but they didn't know what to do with me and so many scars and furrows got made like learning from me that it's just the relationship isn't there what was that relationship like when you got there at seven until you went away at 13 what was that experience like like they tried like they did but like for again until i was like 10 i didn't come out of day-to-day mode so i couldn't they couldn't understand why i couldn't be regular and i didn't give any thought to what they were thinking because I was busy surviving and being like assimilating because like to me at any moment all that could go away or at any moment someone could you know slap me or hurt me and sometimes they did like they did like my mom fucked me up a couple times you know not that I didn't like warrant it like if I had a kid that acted like that I would want to fuck him up too (laughs) I wouldn't but like they didn't know at the time you know and they're much better and they've done really good with my younger siblings who were adopted um but like unfortunately the scar there are scars there that you know can't be undone and part of one of those is during these holding sessions it's torture like three times a week for hours and they would like fret me for my parents coming and they would do it in front of my parents and they would make my parents be the one that held me what yeah so it was just like it was so uncomfortable and so mind fucking and these people were writing papers and getting published because of this and they were like ooh we have results they were basically forcing results with torture essentially like if you boil it down that's what they're like they're building their careers on the tears of children yeah absolutely 100% so what happened after so, that treatment? Treatment. Another the right facility. Word, but, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it was that was the 1990 shock therapy. Like people mm. don't know that happened, but that happened to a lot of kids. Like I was not the only one that they were doing that to. Yeah. They had a whole group of subjects that they were doing that to. So you went to 
another facility, and yeah. then it was another facility that specialized in in sexual trauma. Uh-huh. Um, and so that place was weird on a different level because I was fourteen when I went there. Yeah. And when I went there, like, so I was going through puberty, and that whole place was like all they talked about was sex, and it was all dudes. And then the you weren't allowed to like touch each other or be within a certain range of it. It was like having COVID. Like you had to be like five feet at all times from each other. Uh-huh. And if like you couldn't touch each other, that was like an offense where they could put you in like a rubber room for. Like it was fucking weird. Like they all, but all they wanted to talk about was sex and the like sexual inappropriateness. Um, so it was a weird mix. Um, and I was there when I was 14 going through puberty, always talking about sex. They'd be everywhere all the time and not allowed to indulge in it at all and surrounded by nothing but dudes. So like I'm putting those pieces together. Like, you know, like I had a few guy experiences and, and I'd yeah. had some before that, uh, growing up, I was what like hypersexually like, Oh, they were normal. It's all of them in the woods. I ended up having just like making out with everyone touching around on each other. Cause we were all kids. Like we didn't like actually try to do anything. I feel like for a long time in life, I was, and still am to some degree, I associated a lot of like worth with sex and like Mm -hmm. if people didn't want to have sex I felt like I took that like well that's that's my fault Mm -hmm. almost it couldn't possibly be that you're just not interested in this moment it's Mm -hmm. like I like what did I do I still struggle with that like dating is weird yeah Uh, but like you said it's awareness too like we're both very aware of like how that affects us which is the difference like we think about it and don't like it yeah so choice you know it is but it's like i don't say that i I guess that makes it sound like everyone who's been abused it's like a choice away from fucking a kid like i don't (laughs) think that's the case at all oh it's not like i do think there's an element of i guess attractiveness to to that but i definitely think that what you like is Mm -hmm. a reflection of your the things that you're missing in your life or were missing at a certain point when it was important for you to have those um what do you mean like so i I feel like you know and this is just you know armchair therapist but i feel like a lot of girls that i've had interactions with and men they really like to be choked and like made to do things and that kind of thing and it's part of that is like what i have liked because i like to be in control and i understand that and i've translated that into like a dominant role with women yeah and that feeds into my mom issues too it's like a whole like triforce of issues (laughs) for sure um but i understand that about myself but also like all the girls that i've been dominant with all them been molested mostly by their dads or like their stepdads like a father figure that was supposed to be strong and in control but not in that way it's so prevalent in society that way it's like that must be normal but it's like i've been in relationships that aren't about that either i mean to be fair she ended up being attracted to women but been there brother we cuddled a lot (laughs) and we you know we like we had a great relationship like she was my best friend you know and like it's interesting to think about like with submissive behavior and dominant behavior if that's the root of it which is like wanting to sort of fill this void that you were missing Mm -hmm. or were like overexposed to as a kid well and i can relate to those girls too that's another reason why i feel like i could say it because like 
I also feel very submissive towards men. Sure. Uh, like I have that, like whenever, whenever I have been in a relationship with a man or like done that, I've definitely taken the follow role. Uh-huh. It hasn't been me leading, but like almost never with women. Am I like that? Gotcha. But I had abusive male figures in my life who that's the only reason they liked me. And then I had a mom who used me, my sexuality for her own gain. So like, but those are the exact people I'm attracted to. Like I'm so attracted to girls who are going to fuck me up and use me. (laughs) And like, that's my fucking type. (laughs) And they're always blonde and little for some reason. I don't know. My mom was tall and brunette. (laughs) This is not really hard after you think about it enough. You know, it's just that all the Nile gets out of the way and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty basic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my life hasn't been basic, but my response to it is. So, <laughs> you've obviously done, like, a, a bunch of reflecting on your experiences, and what has been, like, what's helped you the most in terms of, like, processing all of this stuff? Dude, honestly, and I don't mean this to be, like, you know, the the cool answer or whatever, but, like, taking LSD alone. Like, alone. Not trying, you know, like, when I take... I, and I don't do it anymore because I got to a point with it where I felt like it was becoming just a way to pass time. Like, like weed, it wasn't helpful. I wasn't uh-huh. using it as introspective. Um, but for a while, for a couple of years in college, the end of college, like I was 25 and 26. And I thought that it was the right time for me too. I feel like those things find you at the right time, at the, yeah. especially at the beginning. Um, and I, the, my first experience happened to be with someone who had a vial of pure acid and was like a big time weed dealer in Portland. I didn't know this guy. I was like at a friend's house and he came over. He dropped three and a half drops on sweet tarts. And my friend who understood what I needed at the time, um, he just left me there for 24 hours in his home. And he just kind of was like my like guardian angel for that road trip. And he uh, introduced me to this. He left me in his home alone for 24 hours. He told me he was going to do so. And uh, I trimmed my balls off. And I, like, <laughs> thought about things. And, it, like, that started me towards that self-reflection mode. Like, it, I didn't do as much of it that night. But it started me down that path. And down the path of, like, using that as a way to be my own therapist because I had Mm -hmm. so much knowledge I've been exposed to so much professional therapy like I literally know I've gone to therapists as an adult and I'm like you're a fucking joke like I know (laughs) so much more than you I don't mean like I don't think don't get it twisted I don't think I can help you or anyone else (laughs) dude I I felt the same way as far as myself with therapy it's like you you find things it's obviously incredibly beneficial for some people but like I felt the same way I went to a therapist in New York this is about nine months after I started doing stand-up and I've like been doing stand-up about getting molested and I'm like talking about it constantly and like feel like I'm healing for the first time in my life and I went into the therapy session the first day I was like here's what happened to me laid it all out like first thing you know because at this point I'm telling strangers about it every night like don't give a fuck about you finding out about this so we talked about it I did like three sessions and eventually she was like hey you don't need to be here you got a good like, handle on this keep doing stand up like yeah. it's, just, it's 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 just talking it's therapy yeah yeah so I I know exactly what you mean and I, I, we actually never got to this uh, what happened after your uh, from ages 14 to when you started doing acid what was that like 
a lot of anger, man. I just didn't know what was going to happen to me. I was in these facilities. I eventually realized that I was never going to get to go and live at home and why. And it just made me so angry to be like, I just felt like almost like, like teased, you know, there's like, yeah. Oh, there's this family waiting back here for you. But it's like, there's not though. Um, and they've all, they're all growing up without me. And like, it's just, it went so far and they kept me, they literally like, abandoned me but then they've also learned about all this stuff in the meantime like when they started doing their international adoption foundation they like and started doing all this research and donating money to it and learning themselves they know all these things that i'm saying now too like they're just as learned now as i am about what happened and they have so much guilt like uh-huh, my mom yeah. can't fucking be around me without crying wow but it's like but they also like don't call me and shit you know (laughs) it's it's, they're just you know they're just fucked up people too and you know the shit happened and they don't know how to deal with it and i don't really like want to deal with it i want it to just be like not a thing but it is yeah so we just like don't really talk as much and i don't really talk to my brothers and sisters as much because they all have their own lives and like we grew up apart you know as soon as i left those facilities i went to the marine corps like i didn't come back home and start interacting like i got away Mm -hmm. and so like the next time i saw my family after 17 was like i was 21 22 years old like they didn't even know who i was yeah they didn't recognize me my dad literally didn't recognize me when he saw me for the first time in a long time i don't know i've just always kind of raised myself i'm resigned to that and uh it's probably I mean, definitely part of why acid was so effective. Solo acid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I definitely started growing up at that point, like trying to be an adult. Yeah. And stop being, because I had done several crimes before then and been in jail and like... What were you in jail for? I was in jail for... <laughs> me. So stupid. <laughs> so I didn't have a car and I wanted to go on a road trip. And my friend had a car who was living with me and she didn't like her car. And she was mad at her dad for not getting her a new car. First of all, probs, right? Yeah. So I was like, yo, I'll take the car. And you just tell the police that like, you know, somebody stole it, but you don't know who. <laughs> And this bitch ratted me out immediately. What? She, like, straight up, I guess her dad got so mad at her that she got scared. And she was like, oh, this is what really happened. Like, Josh took the car. So I ended up in Missouri with guns drawn on me with a stolen vehicle. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, and, like, uh, they fucking pulled me out of the car. I did, like, two months in jail in Missouri. And then they, they didn't, like, I just denied it up there. I was like, look, the bitch gave me the keys. I told them what happened. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. they were like, we're just going to let Tennessee deal with this, <laughs> So they they sent me back to Tennessee. And when we got there, basically it was like I had the keys. And she was my friend, like, probably. So, like, the judge was like, yeah, that's probably right. Like, that sounds stupid. Like, that's probably what happened. So the judge believed me. It was a real people's court situation. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. We are fully in the dark now. It's pretty epic. Pretty much can't see. But, honestly, at this point, it's kind of tight. It's a vibe, dude. It is a bit of a vibe, dude. Just the sunset in the background. If you've been with us from the beginning. Yeah, we appreciate you. Now being treated to this beautiful sunset behind (laughs) us. Some Santa Monica sunset for you. You don't need to see our faces. Just uh, take in the... This is now an FBI interview. Yeah. Now it's fully anonymous. (laughs) So, when you were in the Marine Corps... Did you experience any, like, abuse or anything like that? 
No. Actually, let me let me rephrase that. No. What was the Marine Corps like? The Marine Corps was amazing. Um, for the first time in my life, I was actually, like, what I did was who I was. Like, it was reflective of me. Like, I threw myself into it immediately. I was all about it. I wanted to be the best Marine I could be. I had a, a, a actual good role model, uh, a, a guy who worked at one of the places that I respected and looked up to who was a Marine, and that's all I wanted to be. I was like, I'm going to be a Marine. Like, I'm going to be like this guy. Uh, and he was strong and tough, but he was, like, fair and just. Like, he never let anyone get bullied, but he also didn't take anyone's shit. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just, like, he was exactly how I wanted to be. He was, like, kind of an anti-hero, but, like, a good guy. So I jumped right into it and immediately that's like they didn't know me it was kind of i didn't even think about it before i went but it was really liberating that like everyone just knew me as an awesome guy a great marine everyone liked me and that never been the case in my life ever before Mm -hmm. everyone always knew me as like that fucked up coley kid that like steals and shit you know and so like it was a real sense of pride to be a marine and it really like made me want to like be like I saw hope I saw a future for myself I saw something like I saw that it didn't have to be just me being in facilities and in jail and being a fuck up and at this point I hadn't been in jail but I had been in all these facilities right and then um I got hurt and I I got hurt overseas and um what happened uh let's say that for another podcast it's sure. kind of a long story yeah no but worries. essentially I got uh, metal in my belly and like you got and shot like or blown up whoa and um it caused me to be like laid up for like five months and my belly was exposed and there was uh there's a big scar on it now it's fine now and i like i'm very lucky to have all my limbs and all that but it caused me to not be a marine anymore like mm-hmm. it was 2008 which was the financial crunch and the military was not retaining people who had served for 20 years you know like or 12 years like they were getting rid of anyone that wasn't needed yeah and i was in bed for six months and i only had like at this point i was like three years three months into my contract of four years so they just were like you know you're done mm-hmm. um and i didn't realize i could fight it at the time and i just signed whatever they put in front of me because i was a good marine and uh i ended up just getting out like yeah. that was it so I miss it. Like, it was great. But it also, like, I feel like now I have that purpose again as a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Um, and, it, like, but I went, I floated a long time just not really knowing the fuck I was going to do in myself. And I think that's part of the reason I did some of the questionable shit I did and experimented with drugs and all that. I was just searching and, like, figuring things out. Like, I was, that was the first time in my life where I felt safe enough to, like, make mistakes and be a kid was when I was out on my own. But unfortunately, it also, like, kind of screwed me for a while on adult shit that I didn't know yeah. about. <laughs> like, sure. credit and <laughs> taxes, that kind of shit. So what brought you to stand-up? I always loved stand-up, but I never had the self-esteem or the ego to be like, I could do that, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it always seemed so daunting. But it was always something I was like, that's so cool. Like, if I could do anything, I want to be a stand-up comic. Yeah. And I always just held on to that, but always did regular jobs. You know, I've always had a job. It may not have much money behind it, but I've always worked. And I've always been very proud of that. So I searched a long time, and then I was married in Seattle to a girl, to my best friend, who ended up coming out to me. And we, that was a whole mess. But uh, it was during that time, like right after she had come out to me and had her own trauma memories come up. 
And I'm really grateful I was there to help her with that because she had a very similar experience to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to be her there for her when she was going through all that. And we were away from our families. Like we were up in Seattle. And we're in Seattle, um, by the way. We lived in Capitol Hill. Nice. Um, and we worked at Happinessa on First Avenue, right across from Four Seasons. Do you know Seattle U? Yeah. You know, right across from it, in front of it, the, there's the Ryan House. Yeah, I the, love the, Ryan the, House. The, I was Irish. Ryan House for uh, last, like, three months ago. Bro, that Irish pub next door? Yeah. That was my bar. Epic. Yeah, that was interesting. That was when I was going through my, like, divorce and, like, separation. And we also, me and, right before that, me and my wife were polyamorous for a year. And so, yeah, I, was just, I lived in that bar until pandemic hit. And then that's when I didn't work there anymore. <laughs> that's when I started doing stand-up. Because everyone I worked with was always like, shut the fuck up. We're busy. Like, yeah, you're funny, but, like, later, you know? And so, <laughs> finally, one, uh, someone was just like, you, like, you're doing stand Like, you're coming with me to this open mic, and you're going to fucking, like, tell your jokes there. And I did it. And the, it's really an interesting story how I felt at... It never has ever happened to me at any other time in my life. I went on stage. I was super nervous. As soon as I stepped on stage, I went still, like, my whole body. Like, I wasn't shaking. I wasn't nervous. I actually, like, landed a couple jokes. I'm sure it was fast. And uh, when I went back to my seat, I just remember as I sat down, I, like, from head to toe felt pinprick. Like, (laughs) like this weird, like weird ass feeling like all over my body yeah and all i could think was finally i know what i'm gonna do like what i'm supposed to do like i know what i'm gonna be good at fuck i was just like holy shit finally because i had been searching for years like 10 years i didn't yeah. i didn't really realize it until that moment where i'd been looking so hard and it felt so fucking good to just like know what i was gonna do finally and what i could focus my my energy towards you you feel it It, i i felt the same way during after my first set where it was like this is i'm gonna do this forever right like how how have i not been doing this (laughs) already forever yeah so yeah i'm really grateful for seattle i think that honestly i look back at it now and i learned so much in that last year there it was the hardest one of the hardest years of my life but i learned so much and then uh honestly COVID happened for me at the perfect time because I was looking to I was in pain like I didn't I mean I was very angry again for the first time in a long time I had recently understood my sexuality and like come out about that Mm -hmm. and you were this was just a few years ago yeah this was 30 31 when when this was happening awesome and then the divorce got finalized in 30 when I was 32 and then like right before COVID I moved out like literally days before and was stuck in a new apartment with a new roommate that I barely knew for like a year. (laughs) So that was interesting. It was actually really cool. I started working with homeless veterans. Sorry, that's where I was going with the COVID thing. It allowed me the opportunity to step away from the bar and drinking and the drug scene. And like I was able to, I had a lot of regulars there that were social workers. And in Seattle, you don't need necessarily a degree in social work to do social work. So uh-huh. I was working, especially during COVID. So I was working directly at a homeless shelter with homeless vets. I grew up in homeless situations. My, I'm a veteran. So it was like the perfect way for me to like direct my energies at that time and reset totally. before I moved here. Wow. So. 
That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like that all of that worked out. It sounds like the divorce ended up being the best thing for both of you in terms of Yeah, I think she's doing really well. I still I talk to her occasionally, but it's not quite back to like a oh, friend level. To, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you were polyamorous. We were. Does that yeah. mean an open relationship or what is that? Well, we we both kind of didn't know either. Um, <laughs> so, no, it's not. It's a, it's a relationship where you and your wife or significant other date a third person. Oh. And, like, have a relationship with them. At the time, though, she – I just felt it was a lot of – like I went back, I regressed a lot during that time because it really felt like another abandoning. Like she was my best friend. I had never, ever like been with anyone like that. And even though I'm over it and over all the jealousy stuff and all the sex stuff, I had missed the shit out of her. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like I don't, like, I don't know how I would ever be that way with someone else. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah, but not holding out hope she's pretty pretty (laughs) pretty stubborn something tells me there's gonna be somebody even better i mean hopefully we'll see but i'm not really focused on that these days i finally learned to stop using sex as a crutch i mean i still have sex but it's not as important to me as it used to be i'm a lot happier when i'm not prioritizing sex yeah it feels like it's something that Especially, like, if you're prioritizing sex, like, if you're sometimes, like, I'll go through phases and because I was in a relationship for a long time and I felt like when I got out of that relationship, it was, like, out of college. So I felt like I had all this missed, like, experiences to sort of catch up on almost. That's how I felt about the marriage. I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. So Six years a lot now. Yeah, my, my relationship was six years, too. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it, uh, yeah, <laughs> also in Seattle, or originated in Seattle. And it felt like after after that ended, it was like, it wasn't really about connection. It was just a warped perception of what I needed to feel okay. Because in college, it was like, oh, I just hooked up with this chick. Uh, you know, like, and you, like, people would be like on a high for a little while, and you tell everybody about <laughs> it. And it was like all this stuff. And so I felt like I was trying to, like... I feel some sort of a void also that it was left by my ex. And then you would, I would go out and I would meet somebody and we'd hook up and have sex. And then it would, the next, I would just feel weird and like kind of gross. And yeah. it's weird to go from emotional attach, em- emotional connection and emotional sex to like fully unemotional sex mm-hmm. and no attachment. And like, it's a very different experience. And I think that when I stopped prioritizing that and started putting the energy that I was putting from in my old relationship into just myself and what I was doing and into stand up and all these things that I loved doing mm-hmm. that was the shift that happened and it was like sex sex wasn't something that needed to happen it was a cool bonus to yeah life. it would sometimes happen yeah <laughs> but not a necessity for feeling okay which I think also probably related to the molestation too where it's like receiving validation mm-hmm. or something from sex I don't know no yeah you're you feel accepted and approved yeah of you know you feel like for that moment you feel like you're making the right decisions and doing the right things yeah. And it's based on, like you said, a warped value. But as soon as you get that prize, you realize that. And then you that's when your shame cycle starts. The shame cycle yeah. is very real. And you but feel- then because of that shame, you have to go and get that approval again. It's a vicious cycle. So, 
Do you, I, dude, honestly, going out specifically with a purpose to get laid always ends up like a night of cocaine. It's <laughs> seriously, it seems fun, it sounds fun, it looks fun, but yeah. when you do it, Dude. You tell yourself it's fun, but at the end of the night, you're just you just end up like doing whatever you got to do, yeah, to like get that last hit in, dude. And and the when you go out without any expectation, that's when it the best things happens, happen. Yeah, you know, and it's the same it's like thing I'm just with going out to have a beer. Yeah, you go out mm-hmm. for, for the sake of having fun, and then that's what you're attracting into your life. Mm-hmm. Is more fun experiences, and it's not something that needs to happen. I, f- I felt the same way with like relationships and like the the moment i stopped needing anyone else for feelings that was like the moment i started like realizing like oh like i i have everything that i need already mm-hmm. within myself every feeling that i'm trying to access externally is available internally mm-hmm. and sometimes it takes really desperately you know needing that from other people to realize that like this is not sustainable and that the moment you start providing that to yourself that's when you attract people into your life that are like better than you could have imagined when did you first do stand-up about getting molested oh immediately i was (laughs) was that your first set no i was doing i was doing that as part of my act in seattle but in seattle i ended up having to start my own show at my bar it wasn't my bar, but I called it my bar. But anyway, I started a show there because all I get was three minutes in a lotto pool at this other place. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I have access to a stage. So I just did my own shit. And all the people in the bar like supported me and liked it. And um, that's where I... And it was raw. I'm sure if there's any recordings from back then, it's not great. <laughs> but it was definitely like honest and like... Yeah, I definitely talked about my molestation there. And I I realized early on in my comedy career that I wanted that to be at least a focus for my first special because it's it and it was because people would come up to me and be like, That happened to me. Like I realized that it was like something that was that was good. There was something good happening with that. Yeah. And that if I kept writing about it, the way I was presenting it was agreeable to most people that's been the most challenging thing is to say these jokes in a way that people are with me and to to and having to change my real story because i used to do the real shit like i used to do like jokes about the shit i was telling you about and nobody really wants to hear that unless yeah. they are pissed drunk so that was the introduction of the uncle then yes i had to make <laughs> up told, an told uncle touching so yeah. it made them feel better about it and even then it's a little <laughs> dark for some people like some people still like i had i had a friend i work with uh, she walked away from the show the other night and i had to come up to her because i only recently became friends with her and i had to assure her i was like no like that really happened to me yeah you know i I made it funny too she was like you know did you should like that actually all happen you know i was like of course not my uncle never took me to disneyland (laughs) (laughs) so i had fun with it but she understood like i made it clear to her you know like that actually happened to me and that's how i deal with it and like i'm trying to help people not hurt people and she was like very receptive for that after i was able to talk to her but i've also had people wave chicken fingers at me and be like shut the fuck up really yes and i've been like no you shut the fuck up in response to your in your mouth. Material. Yeah, but one girl told me I wasn't allowed to talk about that, and I was like, "Why?" 
And she was like, because it didn't happen to you. And I was like, how fucking dare you? You literally just, I was like, you literally just said that that didn't happen to me. It's like, what if you told me you got raped? And that was my response to you. And this was in Seattle, Uh in the Me Too movement. It's not different. It's not at all. And she couldn't say anything. And I think what it is, I was pissed. Reasonably so. And she stayed mad at me too. Like she didn't give up. Like later on, she stayed at the bar. And then later on, because I fucking worked there. Like I would work, I would be a bartender and then go up and do my act and go back to bartending. And so I was like clearing a table <laughs> yeah. later on and she like fucking came up to me and she was like, I didn't appreciate the way you talked to me. I was like, you interrupted me and victim blamed me. Well, it's, it's always interesting when people are so <laughs> adverse to believing that these things happen because, you know, yeah. it happens to people when they speak up. I was like, why? Because I'm a settings. white male. Yeah. Like, like I'm just trying to take advantage. I feel like part of it is just that it's such an absurd thing for so many people to consider that like people who have been molested would want to go on stage and talk and joke about it. Like it's more believable to them that I'm just making that up yeah. for funsies. Yeah. And then they have to take the like moral high ground. Of, I'm going to show this guy. Yeah, don't right, worry, everybody. Like, I got this. Like you can't save a hope. Like where were you when I was four, yeah, bitch? Yeah. What you're trying to achieve, you're doing the opposite by, do, by <laughs> trying to take me down it's so silly but people have that reaction it's very selfish reaction and i honestly i have to have mercy for those people because honestly my thought is it probably happened to those people the most probably that's why they're so resistant to it it's like i don't want to think about it i've spent 20 years repressing it why are you talking about it (laughs) yeah like that's the vibe i got from this lady like i'm sure she got molested well and it's so much better to approach those situations with a sense of empathy and to understand that like okay you know that's very likely the reason. Just because it happened to you doesn't mean you get to tell everybody how to process it. Right. You're causing her to now have things come up that she didn't want to have come up. and Some people are okay with it just being in the far, far background for their whole life. Like, some people can... Some people can be functional alcoholics, you know? Some people sure. can be functional trauma victims. Like, they can push it far enough back and it just stays there. And maybe it bleeds out on, you know, hitting their kid every once in a while. <laughs> Hopefully that's, like, the, you know, the best case scenario, but... <laughs> I don't know if that's best case, but... Yeah, well, I mean, as long as they don't worse. start raping, it you know? It could be worse. It could yeah. be worse. So... I have a low standard. I just want <laughs> yeah, yeah. to be treated <laughs> regular. Yeah. Stand-up really can accelerate healing Mm -hmm. because it allows you to not only speak and process these things, but in a way that allows you to feel okay. Mm -hmm. And It's acceptable. And not only acceptable, you're getting that approval feeling that uh you would get from drugs or from sex. A whole new way Mm -hmm. to view experiences that... It's a healthy coping mechanism. Uh And you're relating and help. It's socially appropriate. Not just acceptable. It's appropriate. Yeah. You should be talking about it with strangers. The the nicest people to me during going through all the things I've gone through have always been people I had no idea who they were until I met them. And they were just like kind strangers to me. Like the dude with the acid. I really never talked to him much after that. I met him. I gave him a ride. Uh, on the side of the road and turned out he was like rich and like had like he lived in the same building as Chuck Palahniuk I don't know who that is he wrote Fight Club oh and like a bunch of other amazing books so like it just like strangers have always been the kindest people to me and um any money I make is going to go towards, like, helping people. Like, I don't give a shit about Ferraris and all that yeah. shit. Like, I'm going to probably build a homeless shelter down here somewhere that's, like, privately run and the government has no say in. 
because that, it's man. a need down here. And Seattle is much better. But anyway, it's a different topic. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who has been through something similar who's hoping to get to the point that you're at now? Honestly, just just talk about it. Find a way to talk about it. Write it if you can't talk about it. Get it out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first step. Like you can't deal with it if no one can see it. You know, you can't really, you can't pull splinters out of your own eye to to borrow from the Bible or whatever. Mm. You know, you so you need help with something like that. And um, getting it out is when you start healing because it, when it's in there, there's not like it can only grow around that pain. And so if you don't get that splinter out, it's nothing's going to heal. And uh, if you get it out it'll start healing it may take you longer it may stumble through it but getting it out is the most important part i think and and the world will take care of the rest it's so true and you never really know until you do it Mm -hmm. how amazing it feels to like get it off of your chest the more you speak up the more you realize oh my god i'm not alone at all there's Mm -mm. so many people that know what i've been through and can empathize with me and there's so much healing available to all of us just by being willing to talk about it Mm -hmm. whether that's to a therapist or to a friend or to a stranger or writing a a note to yourself just finding a way to get it it out it'll help you in general be a better communicator because if you could talk about something like that yeah you could talk about anything yeah it's so true like there's (laughs) nothing that you can't like once you develop that comfortability on that level like there's seriously nothing's off limits so just as a comic it's helped me professionally which was unintended consequence, but also as a, like, as a person, someone with our experiences, well, I mean, maybe I don't know all of your past experiences, but also I'll speak for myself, but some of my experiences, it's very hard to communicate effectively with peers Mm -hmm. because I don't think about things the same way that they do. Like even people my own age now, they're operating from a life that like, and yeah, lots of people have had trauma, but like I've always been me. You know, and like I've never really dealt with other people. And I'm like just now learning how to like depend on people and to really Mm -hmm. trust other people. And I'm doing that like in L.A., which is not the best environment for that. (laughs) Yeah. But and it's like it's it's fucked me over a few times. But it's also like it's good. Like it's good that I'm finally able to communicate and and all that just came from just getting it out the first time. Yeah. And like, yeah. I love it, man. I can't thank you enough for doing this and for coming on here and sharing your story. It's, oh, it's been it's great. It's really cool, and I feel so fortunate to to know you now and to be able to come here and do this podcast and do open mics. And dude, you're very funny. Thank you're you're going to be great. You are too, dude. I really I I appreciate wait. that. And um, what? where can people find you on social media? At comedian underscore Joshy with a Y on Instagram. Perfect. Well, check out Joshy. I know you can't see us anymore, but <laughs> here we are. Uh, check out Joshy on Instagram. And uh, yeah, dude, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in the next one. Peace. <laughs>